Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Investing Experts podcast. I'm Rena Sherbel, happy to be hosting Alex Carcitti talking psychedelic stocks and the industry they reside in. Cybin, Atai, Compass are the stocks that we cover the most, but get into what investors should be focused on. Hope you enjoy the conversation. And all Investing Experts podcast episodes are available with full transcripts on Seeking Alpha. Also, any article mentioned in this podcast will be available on the show notes. And if you're invested in the markets, I hope you are listening to our flagship podcast, Wall Street Breakfast. So those searching for insight, investing, news, reporting, and analysis, look no further than Wall Street Breakfast podcast on whatever podcast platform you may May be listening to. Alex, welcome back to Seeking Alpha. I'd love it if you shared with, because you just shared with me, and I think that it may speak to the evolution of this conversation and where you're at and, and what we're talking about a little bit. Kind of catch listeners up about where you're at these days, if you would. I cover the biotech and pharma sectors with a little bit of coverage of other healthcare stocks and medical devices as well. And I also handle cannabis industry. Um, and in the course of my coverage, I tend to consider the psychedelics industry as a subset of the biotech industry, or as, as part of biopharma, because it's drug development driven, uh, at least the portion of it that, that I think is the most promising for investors and also the most likely to create actual changes in the world. Uh, over the last year or so, it has been tough times for the psychedelics industry. Um, equity prices are way down. The bear market was absolutely brutal. Uh, a lot of companies are starting to run quite low on money, and the terms at which they can raise new money tend to be unfavorable, if I can be blunt there, uh, because their stock is worth a fraction of what it used to be. So an equity raise it's going to, you know, it's going to hurt the shareholders a lot and their people will not be so happy about it, even if it's necessary to survive. And at the same time, if they want to take out new debt, there are a few companies that have been able to secure pretty good uh, credit lines and thinking of Compass Pathways specifically. They, they just signed, I think, 50 million. I think it was a revolver uh, credit facility. I might be wrong on that revolver part. But the point is that the the surviving leaders, Compass Pathways, a tie they have the ability to to raise money even in this difficult environment, but very few other companies have access to debt at an okay rate because it, you know, they're still years away from having a product out the door. So I think the story of the next year is going to be collapse and consolidation. I wish I had a more positive message, but I think there's going to be some hard choices made about who has pipeline projects that can make it at some point in the next few years who has the money to actually do it and who doesn't, who didn't quite meet the threshold to, to continue. Uh, so that's basically where I think it's at. It's a little bit grim. I have to say. It's a little bit grim. It sounds a lot like the cannabis industry, a lot of yeah. expansion and promises and forward guidance, very uh, optimistic, let's say. And uh, the chickens are all coming home to roost. Yes. Yeah. And and honestly, I mean, if you're in media, I, I, anywhere you look, there's so much cost cutting and uh, just a real 180 from, I think, where we were a couple years ago. When you're looking at the sector, you talked about Compass Pathways having, and, and that's something also we're seeing in cannabis, the, the most well-capitalized companies are going to be the ones 
that have a chance to survive. What are your thoughts about where Compass is at in terms of its clinical trials? I know that it's trying to go for phase three. I don't know what the timeline is there. What are your thoughts there? And would you say that it's the the, the best capitalized because of its a tie connection? What would you attribute it that to? So for Compass specifically, the timeline is kind of an interesting question. Um, one dynamic that I think they're going to bump up against is that it is possible, technically speaking, for their late phase clinical trials to be concluded before the legal regulatory issues of these chemicals aren't even legal for any purpose a lot of the time before that gets resolved. So th they could have a, a functioning therapy product in hand proven in clinical trials in the next couple of years even. And yet the regulatory element of it, uh, you can get the FDA on board, but that's not the only agency that you need to have on board. You'd also need to have the DEA on board. Possibly Congress would need to do something, I would say probably. Uh, so that's kind of a weird problem that, that doesn't really crop up in biotech ever, that the science is ahead of the, the legislation that kind of allows it to be commercialized. I, I think probably they can figure that out or something could be figured out, but it, it probably will lead to them getting blocked at some point. Now, as far as uh, your second question, are they the best capitalized at the moment? I think so. However, you also have to go back to the previous thing, which is that, okay, you have a lot of money and you, you clearly have enough money to finish development of, of their lead program. I think that's that's very obvious that they, they have enough money to finish, especially with, with the ability to draw on a little bit of, of debt like they just secured. Um, it's not that they're about to run out of money. It's they're about to go too fast, so to speak, uh, relative to where- Run out of runway. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know how the market's going to react to that, honestly. I think it's a rare situation. Um, then again, they, they also have to actually finish the clinical trials first. And we don't, we can say that early signs are good, that they're COMP360. It's it's a combination of uh, psilocybin and uh, they want to call it psychological support. I think probably we, we will have more evidence that that is pretty effective because we have some preliminary evidence already, um, but that doesn't matter if they can't actually market it legally. So, they have actually been uh this is a little bit a little bit of a tangent but i think it's worth it uh they have been working with the i believe it's the american medical association to encode into the medical billing system the appropriate entries for psychedelic therapy which is a huge foundational step because it means that if these therapies get out the door, then they could be covered by insurance, provided that they're legal. And uh, that was Compass taking the lead on that. Uh, they also teamed up with MAPS. Do I need to define that or will, will people know what that is? I think you can define it briefly. Sure. I think most people listening know. But... So MAPS is a nonprofit. It's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. It's probably the best known um, research slash not quite lobbying, but certainly advocacy for psychedelics. So uh, the fact that Compass was able to team up with them, that's pretty cool. And the fact that they were able to actually get the American Medical Association to suggest changes to the medical billing code such that these therapies be covered, that's huge. Um, it's another piece of the puzzle that was missing before that looks like it's going to fall into place now. 
and it's thanks to, to Compass. They, they took the lead on that. There's also speaking to those kind of big wins and, and, and partnerships on the regulatory side. There's also news of the FDA coming out with, you know, some guidelines, the DEA, you know, let's say isn't coming out with anything on the offensive. I don't know what they're willing to prosecute or not, but, um, what is your, what are your thoughts? I mean, I know we're seeing huge wins like in places like Australia, um, less less consistent in the states but but there are some nice smaller wins i think that we can point to especially in recent months what would what are your thoughts on the regulatory side of things so my understanding of this regulatory situation in the u.s specifically is there are states and municipalities that are doing decriminalization for example the city that i live in somerville massachusetts decriminalized uh, possession consumption of psilocybin and a few related compounds uh, for investors in the space. I struggle to believe that any of these small initiatives are going to add up to become a market yet. Uh, just because there's a difference between something is decriminalized versus something is legal for medical use. And I think there's a parallel to the cannabis industry here. Uh, also in Massachusetts, for example, I think more than 10 years ago, we quote unquote decriminalized marijuana, but the industry could not begin with any real force until it was legalized. So it could be a stepping stone for psychedelics to be decriminalized or to be legally allowed in certain small areas, usually the cities doing this. Uh, and I believe, I think it might be Oregon that, that decriminalized mm -hmm. totally. And they, they, I'm sure they probably have some some work in progress to get towards uh, allowing medical use as well. Once again, uh, it would take a lot for that to add up to be a market that is big enough to actually target or big enough to actually compete in or big enough to make the biotech business model really work that well. Now I say that, but then also separate bullet point. One interesting trend in the psychedelic industry uh, is that oftentimes there are international clinics that are set up. For example, Jamaica is a very popular place to do this. Companies will set up clinics with the idea of almost selling a vacation to people. So they, they fly in, they get their treatment and the laws there allow it, uh, and then they fly back home. So it's like a vacation slash therapy. I don't know if there are any uh, major public companies pursuing that kind of blueprint. Nonetheless, that potentially something vaguely similar to that could potentially be, I almost want to say a puddle sized market, if that's the only thing that's there. If let's say five years down the line, companies have therapies that are proven to be effective in hand and the legal situation is not really loosened up that much. They they could try to do something like that where they have their, their customers fly in. But I, I don't believe that's where the biggest potential really is. And I, I question whether they will be actually able to be profitable because it's a huge additional barrier for, for patients to have to like transport themselves somewhere else for a week and probably pay a huge amount more, which probably won't be covered by insurance, even if the therapy itself is. So it's a possibility, uh, like I said, at the current way that decriminalization and medical is going, um, it's almost like baby steps 
but you need big steps before it, it ever becomes anything. Does that make sense? Do you think? Yeah, I think so. I, it, the, in the cannabis industry, people are always trying to predict the passage of safe banking and how much that's going to unlock, um, you know, what cannabis companies are, are able to do and uplisting and all of these things. And it seems ever more futile as the years pass on and, and people's, you know, predictions are, are very off. Yeah. Would you say it's just as futile to predict when there's going to be a, a, a straight up totally legal market in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, mm -hmm. I think it is futile to try to predict it. I just don't see I don't see either political party really picking up psychedelics as something that they really want to carry forward. There has recently been some bipartisan collaboration, um, I believe with AOC and Matt Gertz regarding getting the Department of Defense to study these compounds for the purpose of alleviating PTSD. I don't know if that actually ended up passing or not or getting included into a bill or anything and i don't believe that it was like a major uh you know no one was willing to die on that hill and not not to say that they should either but uh there's not necessarily that much momentum for it at the moment at the federal level at least how are you thinking about the industry and how would you advise investors given the fact that there's so many unknowns um how should we best be looking at the industry and what is there a kind of company or are there just specific companies like that have the best relationships that are going to be the best capitalized that have the best, you know, path, path to profitability, even if that path is quite long. So the way that I'm approaching it now is whereas before they were super risky biotech companies, now they are super risky biotech companies that are low on cash. So you can see that that's the, you went from super risky to like super risky squared, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, in practice, I would say don't bet on just one company, make a few small bets on, on the best companies. And for me, the, the, it's still the same group. It's still more or less in order, Compass, Atai, Saibin. Once again, they could eventually run low on money not compass but the other two and certainly anyone who is a smaller name than those are already low on, running very low on money so i would pr probably try to avoid those um the other really general thing that i would say and this is just for me but i think it's it's a useful principle i refuse to invest in any kind of psychedelics company that is anything outside of primary pharmaceutical drug development, which is to say, if there is a company that is manufacturing, let's say psilocybin for the point of selling it to one of these biotechs so that they can do their research more easily. I, I'm not really seeing that there is a business model that is going to work there. Um, the reason is in, in that little example specifically, you need very small volumes of, of these molecules to, to get a therapeutic effect or in a research scale it could be a fraction of that even and obviously if it's for for clinical operations probably these biotechs will want to be manufacturing their own 
from from scratch to have full control over the over every element of the manufacturing process, especially because of all the legal and regulatory issues that are specific to to these molecules, because they are, you know, the DEA has many different standards for it that are, I, I don't think that they're negotiable, right, that you have to abide by them, which means that anyone that is outside of the primary drug developers, they're on very shaky ground, I think often the paperwork burden is very large, but even beyond that, the demand is is minimal. And I would say that's also true for uh, if you ever see that there are some microcaps that are publicly listed. I earlier mentioned these clinics in Jamaica or things like that. There are ones that are publicly listed. I would not choose to invest in those, which is not to say that they will not be successful. Uh, but I, I'm really only familiar with the regulatory structures of the United States and the legal structures of the United States and the clinical standards here and the scientific standards here as well. So perhaps you can say, you know, for three years, these clinics will be, you know, stacking revenue, right? Because they, they do actually make money and, and many, some of them, they could be profitable. There's no reason why they, they shouldn't be profitable because they don't have the same barriers as these biotechs do. They're not held to the standard of making a new product proving in clinical trials they're held to the standard of do people go get treated feel better and tell their friends or something along those lines and it's cool because they could be profitable but they're also very vulnerable to a bad news story coming out of someone saying hey i went there and i had a terrible experience or i went there and i got sick or something so the in, in my opinion i would really confine my recommendations, biotech, United States, Canada, maybe Europe based, um, because that's where I see that the risks are still very high, but I know the risks well enough to be able to kind of quantify them and work around them. And I understand that it's not going to be the same completely catastrophic impact if there is a story that comes out that says, oh, patients in the trial are struggling with XYZ. Well, that happens. And so, you know, there's a system for working with that and addressing those issues as well. So it doesn't have to be the end of the road. But with some of these very small businesses that are kind of scattered around the globe, it could be, right? They don't necessarily have the ability to survive a bad news story. So I wouldn't invest in them. Are there new catalysts for the stocks that you do like? Or is it for mostly the same reasons? New catalysts? Not not really. Um the there are two two big catalysts for all the stocks that i that i like in the psychedelic sector um the first one is obviously legal regulatory and i i count this latest uh getting the medical billing codes updated that that is i count that as legal slash regulatory and things of that nature and then the other kind is clinical trial results or technology development that is tangible and that you can show people oh we've developed this capability that improves our ability to make or evaluate our medicines so those those are the two big ones and i regretfully uh many of the the latest studies that these companies have been doing they haven't made the biggest impact on their their stock prices even if they're relatively positive results and i think this is because a lot of the money has kind of flowed away for now at least a lot of the money from the investing side, like from yes, 
Um, can yeah. you point to some of the wins and some of the companies? And would you and can you kind of specify in terms of um, a tie and and Cybin and what they have going on? Yeah. So from what I remember, uh, the the biggest win from a tie recently, and I think th this is something that I think that the market missed a little bit. Essentially, they they're either initiating or they've already initiated a phase one program for a non-benzodiazepine um, anxiety reducing medicine, which could be gargantuan. So they they completed their phase one study for a non-benzodiazepine uh, anti-anxiety drug. And the results were there, were good, and they will be moving forward from what I understand. So this is not necessarily something that I think is on the radar of many people who are kind of focusing on the psilocybin drug development or the MDMA drug development in the space. Uh, paradoxically, it could be a much larger market ultimately, and it could have an easier time getting to the market. Reason for that being, one, there's not many other options for anti-anxiolytic drugs with a short short onset and short duration other than benzodiazepines. And benzodiazepines have all sorts of problems which make them not suitable for long-term use and also kind of not difficult for people to be functional while they're on them, which kind of, uh, you know, you could suggest that some level of anxiety is necessary to, to perform a task successfully. And then when you reduce it sharply with this benzodiazepine, it, it makes it difficult to perform a task correctly, even if you might need to. So that data from Atai was really good and it could set them up for a tremendous, tremendous medicine down the line. It needs to prove efficacy first in phase two. Nonetheless, they're also, I think, one of the few, if not the only, because I don't remember any others, the only drug developers in the psychedelic space that are bothering with this kind of, uh, it's not based on a primary psychedelic, and yet it could have a huge market. And it is, it's a derived product, right? It's not as though they're taking uh, some molecule that's well known and simply repackaging it in a new way. So that's kind of, it demonstrates that they, they have real drug development expertise beyond just kind of repackaging what other people have done or what, you know, what nature did when they created the molecule or whatever. So that's, that's their, I would say their, their latest, latest win. Uh, for Compass, I, I honestly, I, I don't think I've seen any research out of them that makes me say, wow, but that being said, I kind of, I'm expecting to see something like that from them uh, in their TRD program just because the, the phase two data has been quite good and all the surrounding literature that has been published makes me think that, like I said, eventually they're going to do it. They're going to create this psychedelic therapy that is perhaps not what everyone dreamed of, but certainly will take all the boxes of, of what a good therapy would be and what an effective one would be. So I'm expecting that. I think they have results coming out before the end of next year, uh, late stage results. So I'll be, I'll certainly be reading those for sure. There's been a lot of talk or some talk about MDMA legalized to some degree for PTSD before the end of the year. And then some people are saying, no, that's, you know, it's another goal line that's really far off into the future. What are, do you have thoughts on that? Yes. Uh, before the end of the year, I am doubtful, but sooner than these other these therapies based on other molecules like psilocybin or lsd i think that the road for mdma is a much shorter one specifically because there's such an abundance of research showing that it is very beneficial for post-traumatic stress disorder 
uh, and also social anxiety disorder, among many others. And I think pretty much universally, the side effect profile is known to be very mild without any wild cards in most cases and in a controlled setting. From what I've heard, therapists find it to be a context that is easy to work with, so to speak. Um, just to dive into it a, a little bit, I, I think the, the challenges with something like psilocybin is that people always have, people have heard of, oh, a bad trip. What is a bad trip? It can mean so many things. But the point is, uh, MDMA does not really have that reputation of, oh, it can cause a bad trip. Oh, it can cause all sorts of big problems for people. And of course, in the therapeutic context, when you have a trained practitioner right there with you, the chances of all of these bad outcomes are, are so much lower. Uh, but with MDMA, I really do think that it's it's close to zero at that point, whereas with psilocybin or some of the other ones, there is still a small chance that someone can have some kind of psychological bad reaction to it. Uh, and that is why I think the road is much quicker for MDMA. And, and also just physically, it is not a drug that's going to create a huge side effect burden on the person's body either, which I think uh, the FDA likes to see that, honestly. Um, and then there's the matter of the DOD has expressed interest in this very approach to treating post-traumatic stress, among other things. So that's some level of government buy-in already. And I think all those factors kind of, they, they make it much easier to, to get it out the door, so to speak, legally speaking, than some of the other ones. And also, it's not a, and it's not a drug that's associated with uh, addictiveness, not that the other ones are. Nonetheless, I, I think there's a, a huge body of research that kind of really proves all of the positive factors. And if you look for negative things, you can always find them. But I think that there's less hesitancy about saying, okay, yeah, we should start to actually use this to treat people because at this point, there's so much evidence. Uh, it's kind of, there, there's not any major barrier, so to speak. Um, speaking of, you know, the negative things you could say, what would you, or what are concerns you have about those specific stocks that you mentioned, what would you, what would make you uh, less bullish on them? So several things, right? Number one would be if I were to get an impression that the management team were floundering, and by that I mean replacing people willy nilly, making big strategic changes. Cough, cough, mind med. Yes, cough, exactly. Cough. Yes, and they, I, I don't know if you have kept up with them at any point, but they've it has not gotten so much better since uh when their founder departed and there's been i believe a fight between the shareholders and their new management it's a whole mess so i see that yeah. still ongoing uh like a couple of years later and i say okay well any any indication of that it'll be big big signal to leave to quit my position i don't expect that to actually happen in compass atai or Sybin. However, the other big thing that would really make me less bullish on any of them is obviously clinical trial results that kind of swings and misses. It doesn't hit its endpoint, but that happens in biotech all the time. That's not the thing that'll make me lose my faith unless it's like repeated failures such that, you know, clearly their drug doesn't work. I don't expect to see that. But what would make me lose my faith very quickly is this kind of uh, getting a clinical trial result that is not what was expected and then trying to repackage it as a success and trying to say to investors oh well we might have missed the end point we might have missed the actual goal that we were shooting for 
but we got all these secondary measures that are kind of like around where we wanted to go and you know they can talk about for example if the most important thing with the medicine is the patient becomes less depressed if that's what you're shooting for and then when the results come out they say well the biomarkers in the sample that we took improved by this percentage even though the patient did not feel less depressed so the trial is a success because the biomarkers showed that hey our, our chemical is doing something it's changing something that's a success right that's not a success <laughs> that wasn't the point point. and this is a, a pattern that i see very frequently especially in these biotechs that are kind of on the edge of their scientific field where there's not uh you know there's not pfizer competing in the space right they they will have this pattern of oops data did not turn out as well well we need to say something positive so we'll say a bunch of positive stuff that is ultimately irrelevant and that's the point where we really start to think well that's a problem because if they believe it they're going to continue down a path that does not appear to be working they're going to waste a lot of resources and then ultimately they will not succeed in making a drug and i will lose all my money so i haven't really seen that yet nonetheless i kind of expect to especially now uh now that money's starting to run low the incentive to create the appearance of a big win it's it's very high um and it is often hard to tell when these companies announce their their clinical trial results what is actually going on because i might know a thing or two about the common scales that they would use to measure the level of depression in a subject for example but i'm not going to know about every single little biomarker that they might mention so obviously i will do the diligence and figure it out is this relevant or not are they saying something that actually matters or not but for the average investor i think it's a very difficult a very difficult problem because you can see oh well they missed but actually they didn't miss right because you don't you don't have the context always to say if the patient's not getting better it doesn't really matter yeah they'll, they'll do another trial after that to say oh we're, we're just going to confirm our biomarker data in hopes of actually getting that primary endpoint that they missed the first time so i'd be on the lookout for that that's like three red flags in one when i start to see that um and i try to inform people about that when i do it's hard yeah i was gonna say it's hard to suss out you know uh specious data or massage data i think that points to also probably maybe you can rely a little bit on management in that way that you can kind of be loyal to management that that's not going to do that but i suppose you know we always have to have our eyes wide open to nefarious behaviors thoughts on celo a company that have a couple people have written in about any any thoughts there Celos? Mm -hmm. yeah i find it to be a very interesting company in the sense that the market they're targeting is incredibly small and the ketamine tool that they're using to target that market with is incredibly effective for the little niche that they are shooting for and uh, i will say my opinion on it has not really changed that much i i find it to be well grounded in what they're trying to do versus what they have the resources to accomplish um i i think it's it's difficult because it's one of those situations where if the bear market had not happened if interest had not declined so much in the psychedelics industry i think probably they would have an easier time executing on their their vision for what their product could be because they'd be able to have a lot more money um but i think in the long term i i think that they will be 
in pretty good shape. I don't know that I would invest in them today because I haven't looked at them in close detail too recently, basically. Um, but certainly I would leave the door open there. Um, what are your thoughts on, and this might speak to a little bit further down on the timeline, as a biotech guy, what are your thoughts on more of the pharma, the bigger players coming into the sector? How do you see it evolving or shaking out or consolidating? How do you, how do you see it playing out? Uh, I think it is inevitable that the big pharma players will, will enter the space. How will they do it? This is a complicated question and I'm not hundred percent sure that there's any one answer. Uh, what I will say is I doubt you're going to see Pfizer spinning up a preclinical program for any psychedelic medicine and putting it through the clinical trial process completely in-house. More likely what I think big pharma will do is they will either buy assets from one of these biotechs, acquire the biotech entirely. I think that is a little bit less likely um, for now, or potentially just poach a lot of the most relevant scientific staff and then figure out some other way to do it. Uh, or I, I don't think a collaboration is really on the table right now. And and my reason for that is the the legal aspect of it is the big barrier to to any kind of collaboration going on. The even the the very vague whiff of working in a field that is not completely legally sanctioned to be used for you know medicinal purposes, I think that's enough to to keep the big big pharma players uh, away from the current biotechs in terms of working with them. Buying them once the legal issues change, possible. Buying their assets, I think that's still on the table because it doesn't imply any kind of ongoing relationship really. Um, but until those really basic legal regulatory questions get answered in a way that allows psychedelic space to actually legally commercialize something for medicinal use, I don't see big pharma really touching the biotechs that are out there right now. Um, I, I don't know that that's to their detriment or not just yet. Um, and in terms of which big pharma is most likely to compete in the space other than Johnson and Johnson with their Spravato, uh, that I don't really know for sure. I think probably one of the companies doing more neurology or psychiatry drug development is more likely than, you know, Takeda oncology or something like that. Um, so I don't know. It's hard to say exactly who is going to make a move. I haven't really seen anything that makes me think that they're interested in, in entering aggressively or anything like that. I think really sitting on the sidelines is kind of the, the way to describe big farmers approach for now, watching and waiting. Five years down the line, I think that they'll be far more interested because by then there will be some some progress in the legal regulatory issues and also some progress on uh, kind of testing the waters in terms of commercializing a product. Because they, for instance, if Compass manages to commercialize Comp360 for treatment-resistant depression and they make money with it, that'll be a big, uh, you know, stamp of approval from big pharma because i do think that they are quite reluctant to try to compete in markets that are not kind of proven to exist proven to be viable even if their approach to it might be very different from the the initial competitors so to speak does that make sense mm -hmm. yeah any thoughts on etfs 
I know there's PSIL. Any yeah. any attention paid there? Uh, so I, I looked at them once in a while, and I've noticed that their value has declined tremendously, as to be expected. I would not recommend those to people looking to get exposure to the space, just because I think that they're going to include companies that are not the leaders by virtue of needing to include something other than the small handful of leaders. And that means that they're going to be invested in a lot of uh, downwardly mobile stocks, so to speak. Um, perhaps I'm wrong, but that's kind of my impression. Alex, thanks so much. I think we covered a lot of ground. Good, insightful stuff. Pragmatic. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me on. It was great to, to talk about these things. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.